Well, I thought I'd talk to you today about um, this book. I've just been out a few weeks, Cole. Um, what I'm going to do is I will start off um, by looking at some of the things that uh, I had to think about, about some of the processes involved in doing it. Um, because it's all very well to say, well, let's write a book on coal. But, but of course, um, within the, the limits of what you can write, within the limits of what is publishable, the question is, how do you create a story that is interesting, that people are going to want to read, and that will capture and hold that reading audience? And uh, this is always the challenge that faces people looking to write a book, um, at the end of the day somebody's going to read it and you have to figure out, well, what am I going to put into it? Now, when we look at coal, um, there are many, many aspects of this very vital material that could be covered in a book of this nature. Um, the book broadly, uh, the brief was historical, and what I decided to do was to look at the way that coal has interacted with humanity, and in particular in New Zealand, through all of the years that uh, we've been here in New Zealand, and to try and put some sort of perspective upon that, so that we can then get an idea and a concept of what it means to burn coal, and where we might go in the future. Now, this realistically is what history is about. It's about understanding, it is about broad patterns, and it's about knowing where we have been in the past, understanding it, and so understanding the present, and how the present has come to be, and from that perhaps we can get a better idea of where we're going in the future. So, to this extent, the book hooked in very closely to the needs and requirements of broad history. Um, coal being coal, it also had to be a book about geoscience. I had to cover many aspects that we might perhaps not think were historical, that go back into paleontology, back into evolutionary history, and back into the geological origins of New Zealand, and the chemical origins of coal. But if we look at all of this in a much broader way, we find that this is also part of the history of it and part of that story. And by broadening the base of that understanding, we can get a better historical picture than if we just looked at the event narrative of history alone. Now, that gave me a structure around which to frame about 70,000 words of text, which is about the practical limit these days that can be written, published, and sold for a reasonable price. Um, within that, I then thought, well, what about detailing the way that I'm going to tell the story? And it seemed to me that there were, there were tensions within the story of coal that would create a very good dynamic to the narrative. And in particular, the first tension, which I covered in the first chapters, is the extent to which the very deep time through which coal has come to us contrasts with the very, very short period during which we've been digging it up and burning it as if there were no tomorrow, uh, which of course there won't be if we keep doing it. Um, looking back into the New Zealand side of coal, we find 
that the coal beds we're now digging up and burning began forming about 65 to 70 million years ago. Humanity didn't even exist. This was the age of dinosaurs. This was the age of great flying reptiles. It was a very different world, and it was a world in which shallow seas, swamps, and heavier forestation all came together along what is now principally the west coast of the South Island, but in other areas around the New Zealand archipelago as it stands today, geologically very different from today. And all this came together, largely by chance, the workings of tectonic drift, to set up circumstance where deep peat forests developed. This was the basis of New Zealand's coal, um, as indeed around the world the same thing had been happening at that for many, many hundreds of millions of years. Um, this starts to give us an idea of the scale and the depth of which we're looking at when we talk about coal. We're looking at fossil fuels, fossil biota, captured sunlight, carbon and energy caught up in the folding of the land, caught up in the pressures and temperatures that that creates, thus giving us coal beds. And the thing we have to remember is that these coal beds formed over many millions of years, many, many seasons of organic deposition, trees falling, being crushed, becoming peat, forming into coal. A massive time span which we can glibly put down as a few numbers, easily write down the zeros, but, but when you try to put your mind into thinking where does that stand on a human scale, it becomes a very different picture. And this was the journey that I started following in the coal book. I said, well, where does this development stand in the human scale? And it turns out that the most optimistic scientific approach to origins of humanity suggests that uh, we're very recent, perhaps at the most optimistic level about one and a half million years um, recognisably, but more recent than that really. And then when you look at how we've been using the coal that we found, that is even more recent again. When you look at the way Occasionally there were fires made with coal. The Romans uh, used to use it to carve with and make decorations. People didn't like burning it too much because it didn't smell very nice. It's very dirty. Not a pleasant fuel. And so we come through this huge journey through geologic time into the closest eye blink that you can have the last thousand years or so, which is nothing by comparison with the deep time through which coal had been formed. And we find a Western society emerging, principally Europe and England, that relies on burning trees and exploiting wood as one of the bases of its economic prosperity. And of course the wood was running short, particularly in London. And so humanity in this cultural context started 
exploiting available coal, started burning coal. And this began a process that has gone since with massively increasing scale. Faster and faster on, if you plot it out, as an exponential curve. So working the perspective through in the book, we find that the curve starts steepening at the time of the Industrial Revolution when coal became a key fuel. It became the mechanism by which industry was supported. It became the energy source of Britain. It became the energy source of Europe. New ways were found to exploit it. New societies emerged on the back of it from the mid-18th century onwards, the Industrial Revolution, a fundamental change in the nature of society, in the nature of how production worked, in the nature of employment, absolute social upheaval. Now, you may be wondering, where does New Zealand come on this? But that's part of the story, because this churning society, this ambitious society, a society that for the first time believed they could conquer the world with science, with measurement, they had an energy source that allowed them to transcend muscle power, to transcend wind power, that rendered them independent through steam locomotives, eventually steamships. Um, a sudden revolution of concept and of idea, of ambition. And this was the context in which New Zealand was then founded as a colony of Britain in the 1840s. And so the Pākehā settlers came out here and intruded upon Māori, who knew all about coal but didn't use it very much themselves. And the Pākehā came out here very much enthused with the idea of building a better Britain, a bigger Britain, a more industrious Britain, and of course there was only going to be one way they could do that. So within a very few years of settlement here by Britain, they were looking for coal, and they didn't have to look very far to find it, although the story was a little bit convoluted along the way. Um, what we can see here is that we're now up to the 1840s, the last less than 200 years in a story that began 65 million years ago. So this tiny, tiny fraction of the story of coal, only then here in New Zealand did humanity intrude in any large scale. And that I think was one of the key points that I was giving in this book was that contrast of scale the magnitude of what we've done since with coal versus this very deep, huge amount of time that went in to coal naturally forming, developing, and then sitting there. So we come into the colonial age here in New Zealand, and again, themes of coal, how did we view it, what did we want to do with it, how were we going to use it? And these were all things that were absolutely crucial to the development of New Zealand as a colony because coal was the energy source behind, un, which drove everything. And without it, they would not have had the colony to the scale that they did. Um, the ambition right from the beginning was to build railways, 
steamships, coal-driven industry, coal gas, and to a certain extent all has happened. Um, the first coal gas plants were set up in Dunedin in the early 1860s. Steamships were brought in. I think the government uh, actually ran a paddle steamer as early as 1845. And efforts were made to build railways. All these things were seen as not merely crucial to the development of the colony, but sources of pride, sources of validation for the ambitions of what New Zealand wanted. We could see this, for example, in the way that Christchurch rallied on a particular day in uh, 1861, I think, relative to the tunnel that now runs, the Moorhouse Tunnel running across between Littleton under the Port Hills. Massive turnout, this was a hugely ambitious project. Railway was going to link Christchurch with its port. Progress was the story with the colony. Underscoring for the historian just how important coal actually was. Curious part about that story was that coal was also invisible. People reveled in the expressions of the devices that coal enabled in the locomotives, in the steamships, in the gas lights, the ability to have a gas stove, the ability to have street lighting driven by coal gas. They didn't look particularly to the coal itself. It was a hidden fuel. It was one that everybody handled. Everybody hated handling it. It was very dirty, but they all did it. But they didn't mention or take pride in it. So we, we have a curious relationship here between coal, people, and the ambition of society. And it seemed to me that looking into the story of New Zealand coal, this was a very important point, because that kind of contrast between social ambition, social reality, and the means by which it's achieved, that pops up quite often through New Zealand history in many different ways. Um, coal was one very good example. Now, there were other aspects to coal which were even more important for the settlers than the convenience of having light and heat, of having the coal stove in the farm kitchen, which I'm sure many of us will have seen. There was another aspect altogether, which was that this coal was also produced by manual labour, digging it out of the ground. And there was a love-hate relationship between wider Pākehā society and the people that were doing the digging. Many of them were imported from England. Um, as always with history, one takes uh, mythic assertions with grains of salt. And the, the idea that you know, the coal miners were imported pommy stirrers, which I believe was the way they were viewed, um, cynically one has to question, was that really the case? Uh, there was some... Uh, analytical work done some years ago to look into that, um, the Brunner mine disaster gave an opportunity to look at the demographic uh, makeup of the coal workforce 
and their backgrounds and history. And it turns out, yes, actually, there were a very high proportion born in England, more so than for the rest of the colony. So a certain level of truth in the belief. For me, writing Cole, there were a number of questions to come out of this. One of them was that, um, which has exercised academic historians over many, many years and perhaps generations, is the potential, why did New Zealand not have a communist revolution? Um, what threat was actually posed by the supposition that the coal miners were going to lead radical union movements through the maritime unions and so overthrow um, state and society. Was there really any validity to this? And where did the industrial dislocations of 1890 and 1913 come into it? Um, so I looked in the centre part of the book at how all this went together, because this was also a vital part of the story of coal. This was the human side of it. This was the human side that expressed that hidden nature of coal as an energy source. The people who dug it were themselves, in effect, hidden, feared, viewed as separate. What did they really want? Um, now, a few years ago, there was actually um, some analytical work done on the nature of the coal union movements and so forth, but it didn't, uh, didn't look into the areas that I was interested in looking at, so I had to develop a, a different context in which to place the way in which the coal workers, the coal miners, the associated people in the mining towns, um, I had to look at the way in which they expressed themselves in relation to the frameworks of conventional society. Now, it became very clear by doing this that, for example, uh, they didn't want to overthrow society, but they wanted a better deal for themselves. They wanted better work conditions, better pay, and proper social recognition. And this sort of thing became clear, for example, in the 1880s. There were union meetings in Westport, for example, um, in which the uh, radical aims of the coal unionists were upheld, but also there were toasts to Queen Victoria and the flag. And this very much represented the earlier form of the movement, that, that they were trying to assert themselves within the existing framework. Um, later, Getting into the early 20th century, talk was that the centre of coal unionism at Runanga was the heart of this uh, radical workers' movement, um, internationally linked, that was going to overthrow society. But again, if you look at detail at what they were doing, um, they would have union meetings in which they would refer to each other as comrade. Um, they would read the... Um, revolutionary material put out by the Wobblies, the, the uh, workers of the world and so forth. But the majority of their discussions were about getting better literature to read for themselves. The hall was paid for with commercial advertising from local commerce. So once again you've got this context of an expansion of position with a validation of position 
within the broader framework of society. And so I followed that story through in the book, um, through to the point where the coal miners did in fact take power, the first Labour government of 1935. Um, the entire cabinet was pretty much coal unionists from Runanga. Um, and what did they do? Did they overthrow the economy? Did they destroy capitalism? They didn't. They harnessed it in ways that they wanted to, to, to support and maintain the society that they had been looking for. Um, less radical, more practical, and not, the key point being that it was not the social fear that conservatives had levelled against them. Um, and to me that was an important aspect of the story of coal, in that we find in this an example of the way that popular rumour, popular discussion, the fears of wider society can often lead down a track that is quite well removed from the aims and ideals of what is being feared if you look into them in detail. Um, really only the remove of history gives us the perspective to be able to do that of course. It's, it's not so easy with anything contemporary. Moving on through where I was going with the history of coal, one of the bigger aspects of the story of coal is also the story of technology. It's the story of invention, it is the story of the way in which Western society in general in the last 200 years has come up with a whole plethora of ways to make life easier, better, more comfortable, more luxurious. And coal played an enormous part in this here in New Zealand. Um, I've already touched on the story about the coal gas. The convenience of being able to have a gas-fired oven, for example, meant it could be temperature controlled for the first time, realistically. Um, different sorts of cooking could emerge. Um, I looked at the way the Edmunds cookbook came out by no coincidence at about the time that gas was becoming quite widespread through the urban areas and electricity was already coming in alongside it. And so one of the great icons of the 20th century of New Zealand domestic society, the Edmunds cookbook, in fact had its origins in the way that coal had transformed our ability to live. There was a good deal more than that too. Coal also transformed transport. It created the possibility for rail links with relatively quick transport around New Zealand. Um, it created the possibility for coastal trade driven by steamships, reasonably regular, more so than sailing ships could ever have been. And it drove export markets across to Australia and Europe. Um, for example, it was possible using coal and steam technology to build freezer ships, which meant that the frozen meat industry was able to take off from the 1890s. So coal was integral to the technical development of New Zealand, to the ability of New Zealand society as it matured, as the colony emerged, became more dimensional, pseudo-nation perhaps, 
more dimensional society, demographically balanced, and driven by this energy source. So we come into the 20th century. The tiniest fraction of a moment against that 65 million year scale of coal. Um, 20th century in many ways brought the apparent eclipse of coal here in New Zealand as it did around the world. Now I say apparent because what actually happened was not that coal disappeared. It was that it was removed from the sight of the everyday New Zealander. Everyone had some sort of coal fire at home pretty much. They would have the coal guy would turn up, he'd empty the coal into the bin, or perhaps the kids would do it. Very dirty, very dusty, a uh, lot of work and not too pleasant. Coal gas started to replace that, electricity started to replace that. Coal began disappearing in the early to mid 20th century from the average New Zealand home. Um, but it wasn't in fact removed. One of the big questions of course that you face when you're switching to electricity is where do you get the electricity from? There were limits to what could be done with hydroelectric. Getting into the Second World War, more demands for energy, there was the thought that, well, let's build a coal-powered fire station. And of course, one was put in in Huntley. And uh, subsequently, there's another gone in to replace it at Mary Mary. And this is where Auckland gets a lot of its power from. Um, coal, in other words, had not been replaced. It was merely being used to produce the electricity that took it away from the domestic house. And so we have another phase in the story of coal, which was the way in which it was removed from sight once again, in which it became the invisible fuel into the late 20th century. Along with this came another development into the late 20th century, which was the expansion of the coal export industry made possible by large-scale open-cast mining. This was something relatively new. It had always been a struggle to obtain coal because it had to be dug out of the ground quite laboriously. It's very, very dangerous to do that. We have had a number of coal mine disasters with deaths. Even where these disasters were, where accidents were minor, there were still injuries and occasional deaths. Very dangerous work indeed. Open cast mining got around a lot of those problems and it became feasible to do as heavy duty diesel powered machinery became available during and after the Second World War. And so the potential for New Zealand to create a very large coal export market for itself developed along with the growth of this technology. And this broadly was what happened towards the late 20th century with the second industrial revolution striking China, the rise in demand for combustible fuel, and New Zealand provided its due amount of that. This then 
allowed me to return in the book to the original theme and concept, which was that you have this very, very ancient material, trapped sunlight, trapped carbon, that has been removed from the biosphere over a very long period of time and then for a very long period of time. Suddenly you're digging it up in an eye blink. Suddenly it is being burned in an eye blink. What do we think is going to happen? And uh, it turns out, I did some digging, 43% of carbon emissions around the world today are caused directly by coal. Very clear story. So I took that in the book and I said, right, well, here is where we are today. I wasn't writing a current events, uh, current uh, journalistic approach. I was doing a history. So I didn't cover a lot of the immediate events which have yet to play out, such as Pike River or the future of Stockton. Um, but what I was able to do was to place these current events in that historical context. Drawing back, as I say, history allows us to inform the present and to look to the future. And it seemed to me that we were up against a very significant challenge. There is very little doubt now, scientifically, that there has been a change in world climate brought about to some part by human intervention, of which the burning of coal is a very large proportion of it. The question is, which I concluded the book with, can New Zealand do anything about it? And that is a challenge which uh, nobody yet has particularly noticed I made in the book. Um, but it would be interesting to get an answer on that. We took the lead in the anti-nuclear movement. We sell ourselves as clean and green. What are we going to do about coal? Interesting question. It does not have a simple answer because of vested interests, because of the economic position of it, because of many other factors associated, but perhaps it's time to think about where this might be going. So that, in a sense, essentially was the story of my book and uh, the arguments. So thank you. Plenty of time for questions, um, and Matthew, another Matthew here, is in a, is in a microphone, which we can uh, uh, carry around to anyone who wants to ask a question. I'm not sure where the um, coal mines are now uh, that are still functioning, um, and I would appreciate if you could tell, tell me that, as well as where the anthracite is and uh, what's happening to it. The biggest coal mine in the country is at Stockton, and I had a very interesting time there while researching the book. Um, if anybody wants to know what Mordor might look like, uh, go to Stockton. Um, off the cuff, I can't tell you where the anthracite is. Um, it's the, public, the information is publicly available, though. Um, but what I can tell you about the, the uh, experience on the Stockton mine was that... Um, they have got a particularly good ecological program going. One of the uh, requirements of the resource consent that they had was that they had to put the plateau that they're on back to square one after they'd got the coal out from under it, which meant lifting the entire um, biota of the surface, the rare snails, the tussocks, all of the plants that they could get, 
moving them off, preserving them, and then when they'd finished digging the coal, putting it all back again. And uh, I, I got to look at some of the um, ecological work that they'd been doing, and it's, it's quite impressive. Taking up your theme about it being a hidden fuel, uh, if we ignore the exports uh, and the power generation, we've still got a lot of industrial use of coal, including all the dairy factories in the South Island and even some in the Waikato, um, who, if um, you posit a decline of coal, would find an alternative fuel somewhere and perhaps still um, maintain the same level of emission. Is it the fuel itself the problem or the nature of industrial activity that we embark on? I think it's the nature of the industrial activity because any um, activity that's going to use fossil fuel will produce um, emissions. Coal is one of the dirtiest, but everything else does too. Um, so the question is uh, what energy sources can be looked to, uh, wind power, um, tidal turbines, that sort of thing. You'd have to lean towards electricity generated by those means. It would not be easy or simple to do to any large scale. Um, coal really is very heavily embedded still in the industrial structure. You mentioned that quite a lot of the labour force for the coal mines came from Britain. To what extent did they come via Australia, like from the goldfields? Some of them apparently did. Now, there were some interesting examples there with... Um, there were attempts to directly import miners from Britain. Um, there were recruitment drives in the 1870s into the early 1880s uh, to bring experienced coal miners in directly from the British fields. One of the reasons was that coal mining wasn't just any sort of mining, it actually had a very high skill level to it and required a lot of experience. Um, you couldn't just hack away at a coal seam, it might collapse on you. Um, you had to be aware of the gases that were produced in the coal mine and so forth. Um, there were attempts to use ex-gold miners and other miners uh, during the First World War, I believe, which didn't work too well simply because they didn't have the experience and things went wrong. Um, so there, there, were, there were solid um, industrial reasons why the various companies being set up here looked to Britain as a source of their mining expertise. Um, there were no doubt a proportion of experienced coal miners that came across from Australia, um, but the main quest for them was in Britain. Um, I just have one thing, Matthew, to, um, to ask. I mean, is there, is there anything particularly distinctive about New Zealand's relationship with, with coal that you know really stands out from comparative societies, or is this sort of this, you know, this segment of, of British, you know, British society that was transplanted to New Zealand as it was to Australia and Canada? Realistically, the, the New Zealand story is a shared story. It's the story that uh, Pacific Rim cultures of the 19th century, so you've got uh, West Coast America that was unfolding, New Zealand, frontier Australia, uh, to some extent uh, into South Africa, but, but certainly around the Pacific Rim. All expanding British-type societies that had very, very similar aims and tents. They had uh, social idealism. They had ambition to become great in their own ways. So to that extent, New Zealand is in effect a, an exceptional case study. 
But if we delve down a little further, we can find there were particular features that we can identify with New Zealand, uh, the nature of the geology that was found here, where the coal was, that, that, that influenced the narrative of how coal developed. Um, and also, to some extent, the availability of capital here, which uh, wasn't huge compared to other places. So it tended to hamper some of the development of industry, some of the development of railway and so forth. Um, so that the, the, the local characteristics of the place did in fact uh, colour and define to some extent how the coal journey um, took place you know, within that shared uh, sense of ambition.